This is CliffCentral.com. Future CEOs on CliffCentral.com. Welcome to Future CEOs. My name is Gareth Armstrong. It's good to be with you. What do we do on an ongoing basis here in studio? Well, we bring the best and brightest here behind a mic so that we can question them about their journeys, about some of their failures, some of their successes, and really what makes them tick and what makes them successful. Today will be no exception. It's our Meet the CEO feature. I'm not 100% sure how to introduce you, Prof, but I'm going to say Prof Anderson. You're the CEO of the Da Vinci Institute, but that's happenstance. That, that, that's something that has evolved, but there's something else in your identity which I was reading about and fi- find fascinating mm-hmm. that often people won't associate with being a CEO, and that's you're a, a theological philosopher. Is, is that okay? Can I, can I <laughs> put that on you as, as part of your identity? Well, well maybe just to latch on to that, uh, maybe more philosophical okay. than theological. And, and maybe I want to ground it just philosophically. So on the day when I was born, uh, my grandfather had a very close friend called Tashlo. Okay. Tashlo was a Sutu guy. And Tashlo and my grandfather went to the mountain at the fountain on the farm. And Tashlo said they were mating me a, a span of clay oxen. Okay. My grandfather and Tashlo. While my mother was to give birth, birth to me. And Tashlo said to my grandfather, his name will be Masupa. Okay. And Masupa means the one that shows direction. Mm. Unbeknowingly, my father and my mother decided my name will be Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Mm. So I often wonder, is that a coincidence? I uh, embrace the idea that we are philosophically, I embrace the idea that we are destined uh, in life to achieve certain things Mm. and that we are uh, empowered or given the opportunity to make choices, to make life happen. So if that may give you a view uh, am I philosophical about it? Am I theolo- theological about it? I'm not quite clear. You're also a practicing psychologist. There's this this fascinating mm. world that comes together and often in maybe a different environment clashes, uh, but it seems to have come together mm. and there must be some a wonderful um, sweet spot that mm. has developed for you. Well, well, I love your appreciation that if you bring the theologian and the psychologist and the philosopher together, you'll have rigorous debate. Mm. You'll have a lot of conflict and you have a lot of confronting ideas. I think in my own world, the, 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 the three-way discussion was rigorous for most of my life. Uh, I can't say which one has won the battle, um, but I could say it is a three-way discussion, mm. um, which allows me, in my experience, to have a very specific, maybe, perspective around reality, but one which I feel extremely appreciative of, Sure, that I could have that perspective around uh uh, the way the world works and people often even my colleagues may sometimes ask now if you have to do it over again what would you do and I tend to answer I think I'll do the same but it takes a lot mm-hmm. of strength to be able to hold those views in place and then deal with the tension from a personal strength perspective this, this can be a taxing thing on a person's mm. mind and spirit even mm. maybe I want to share foreground this with something else uh, I grew up in a rural area in the eastern cape close to a little village called Salem. In South Africa, Salem is one of the uh, stories, one of the realities where Africans have been dispossessed of the ancestral land. Mm. And only recently has Salem been given back to the original people, Mm. owners of that land, but that as a buy. So I went, and Salem was a a farm school. And um, so we went to school by walking th- literally through the field and the forest and being aware of many other things, being aware that there's, a lo- that there's baboons running around mm. that could attack you, that there's an occasional snake going in the pathway on your way to school, that there's a leopard looming somewhere there amongst the trees, that there's a bushbuck that if it wishes to, it can attack you. One was very aware of those things. Mm. So... In some way, 
I still believe that that was an immense grounding. That my awareness of where do I belong as a human being, being part of a bigger cosmic reality, I think its origins lies exactly there. So my parents then, being poor people, where we grew up in a very in a poor family, and my parents not being able maybe to send me to the smart Grahamstown school, which was just 30 kilometers further, but to the farm school, walking there. I think what happened there is they, they didn't interfere with my life. Okay. They were busy surviving, mm. and I was busy exploring. So I think those two things probably gave a good grounding for me not looking at life, hopefully just from one perspective, but being aware that life is much more than what we sometimes observe singularly with the eye or by the ear. With this the, the sensitivity that then you developed early on, but then potentially honed through certain mm. kinds of studies, and really honing what that says to me is that there's a certain perspective you're able to hold, but not, not hold too tightly mm. necessarily. Uh, just hold a couple of different positions for us and then tell, tell me mm. um, what is going on in, the, on in the world. I think one of the positions that I sense strongly about is the idea of what's right and wrong. It's a position which I don't quite understand and which luckily from a, sh a young age within this background, I was almost allowed, especially by my parents, not to explain why I think something is right and definitely not to explain which something which they would think is wrong. Mm. Those debates never happened. So when I came into the more formalized world at, at, at high school, when I went to, went to a town and I went to university, I became, and, and especially becoming in, 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 in theology, I became very aware of this, this dual reality. Okay. And I almost developed a certain um, anger, frustration, with the likes of a Plato and Aristotle, mm. where they really tried to put things in opposing positions. Mm. You're either or. But the notion of both and was something which I didn't get a lot of influence in my life journey, other than from my parents, mm. but in a very unknowing way, because they just had no judgment on certain matters. So the flow of energy and the connection between different life entities, be it, be it from nature, well, we're all part of nature, be it human, be it animals, be it plants, that connectivity to me is a strong experience in my own world, mm. where my position on life with things related to morality and what is right and wrong and what is process and procedure and what is normative are problematic to me. Because I think in a world that is extremely compliant and extremely normatively inclined with a high sense of morality, I'm not sure we're living a better life. I think that there are some listeners who would argue and say, what do you mean compliant? Because that that's not what we potentially are seeing, or at least on, on the surface of it. It doesn't look like compliance. But I think if you dig down mm. and you go below the surface, mm. you're seeing extreme compliance. Yes. So we learn to stop at the stop street because it's order, it's the norm. It doesn't make it necessarily right or wrong, no, none of the two. Mm. We just stop there. But what it does in the long run is we learn how to abide by the rules of society. And the notion of being self-regulated as a human spirit doesn't necessarily emerge. So even in the corporate world today, if you look in all our commissions and let's take it, King 4, mm -hmm. it's a beautiful document, but it's a tiring document. Because if I have to comply with all of those, I'll be very busy complying. Exactly. I'm not sure, and maybe that's what you refer to, what we as ordinary people experience, the world is actually less compliant. But the requirement for compliance and, and normative governance is a very high priority when you go through more and more audits, more and more regulatory environments. So it's almost the more we become regulated and compliant, the less it becomes the, the, mm. the matter. Mm. I may, for some of your listeners, argue it's interesting that we even regulated the relationship amongst people in the Western world. We said there will be a marriage, and it, you, will, you will be married as a man and a wife 
but it's a state mm. function. Mm. So we created these rules. Well, I'm not sure that fewer people are now divorcing because they are now within these confines of the rules of marriage. Mm. Well, the facts show that more people are getting divorced. Now, I'm married for 32 years, so you may ask, what does that do in my mind? Well, my marriage, therefore, is not about a normative compliant piece. But if I have to look at all those normative compliant pieces, my wife may even say that I'm not a good husband. So I'm concerned that the more we tend to talk compliance and normative behavior, we get a similar energy pushback that people say, no, I don't want this compliant. Mm. I'm not complying. don't want to be normative. But yet when we make the rules, we all vote for those rules. I also look at it from a content consumption perspective. We're, mm. we're in a digital environment here as we're talking. And when we look digitally, we see how much of, of a person's life is is about compliance the the idea that you are streamed by algorithms and then fed that information on an ongoing basis and you think you're this incredible unique individual but actually you are a result of a set of algorithmic al mm. outcomes and information that is fed to you on an mm. ongoing basis and suddenly you see how compliant we actually mm. are it's well, fascinating well oh, you, you you just trigger something in my mind and it may be problematic, and it's not to offend anybody. I've heard a lot about servant leadership lately. Mm. I wonder why. I wonder why does so, do so many of my CEO peers talk about, I'm a servant leader. Mm -hmm. Because if I really look at that servant leadership, I almost want to say, it has an idea, please follow me. Mm -hmm. Although it means the opposite. But in many cases, the servant leadership, if I read it, the algorithms that you may refer to, in those cases, maybe andro-rhythms. Those andro-rhythms um, calculate for servant leadership. Well, I'm not sure I want to be that servant leader. I'm actually saying it often. Please don't identify me with servant leadership. Mm. But it's became normatively acceptable. Put somebody at the top and let there be a crowd following that someone, the servant leader. But what it actually means, please follow me. Mm, it does. That's exactly what it means. So let, let's go back. As you've shared, you grew up in a particular kind of environment where you didn't have a huge amount of access to, to funds. You, uh, you didn't have access necessarily to the best education, but you were making your way. Mm. Why? How? Because some people would use that as an excuse mm. um, for their lack of success. Mm. I loved two years ago on my parents' 80th birthday, I revisited my farm school. <laughs> well, uh, it's interesting to see it. It's not a school anymore. It's just standing in the felt sort of on its own. But I, I've never understood why it's so important to have the right, the so-called right facility for education. Mm. My facility was nature and a simple st a structure where we shared in five standards from sub A to standard five, one classroom. We were 50 kids, but we shared one room. Is it perhaps because we have the wrong definition of what education is? Well, that's why I'm questioning. What do we mean? Because we can be compliant. I can put the best structure in your environment, with the best regulation, with the best qualified people, but I'm not sure you're going to necessarily have a better education than I had. So although when I went to Grahamstown and I saw the kids from St. Andrews in Grahamstown and they've got their smart suits on, I, I didn't feel intimidated by that. But but why though? So so many people would be. Yeah, I never including had, future CEOs. Mm, if you reflect on that. Well, I I don't know. You know, it's interesting. My ancestral father is Swedish, Lasse Andersson, and my ancestral mother is Malayan. Now they they went away from their people. Mm. Lasse Andersson left because there was religious wars in 1783, and he got onto a ship and he said, "Stuff all of you." He was 42 years old. So that sense of adventure and of breaking new ground and of, of being yourself, I just, I just thought that's what life is about. 
So you've hit on something which is quite important and something that I've been putting some time into over the last few weeks, um, probably a few months looking at, and that is this sense of identity and self. Mm. Well, well, on, on, maybe I want to respond on this on this way. People often ask people, so who's your mentor or who's your role model? Well, forgive me. I've never thought of that. Yeah, it's a question we ask. Well, it's That's a question so. that I don't understand. And it's a question that I don't think of asking anybody because I am mm -hmm. and you are and therefore we are. Mm -hmm. But there's not a matter of you are and therefore I will become and therefore we will be. Mm. I am and you are. So let's just live alongside each other. Does that mean we don't engage and we don't interact and we don't, and we respect. don't aspire. None of that. It all happens. But I don't think of you as a role model. Because a role model assumes there's something great, and usually there's just one in a million, mm. and we must all think of becoming that one special person. I think it's problematic. So then, if I grow up in a community, and there's nobody special in that community, well, that will mean I'm lost. Because mm -hmm. there's no role models. There's no mentors. Wow, so I'm lost. So it almost feels like a, a bit bare me of a religious idea. Mm. Because if there's not a pastor, well, then there are no Christians. So how do we then find a true north in that kind of environment? Well, I think we must look inside. Once my wife and I went to Peru, and we met a shaman, and he had a wonderful discussion. He said, if you and I want to be real in the now, we should be able to elevate our minds like a condor mm -hmm. to such a point, to such a height, that you're in your mind's eye, you can see tomorrow rolling in and today rolling out at the same time. To be in the now. To be in the now. To be real in the now. So to what extent am I elevating my mind to a point where I can see tomorrow rolling in and today rolling out, so that I don't lose the connection of orientation and existence. Mm -hmm. I don't think we do that. We rather say, please stay at your low level. I will look at you. I'm the servant leader usually. I will look at you. Mm -hmm. Or I'm the CEO. Or I'm the president. Don't worry. I'll look at you. I will elevate my mind, if I do, and I will see tomorrow and today in one uh, continuous engagement but we're not inspiring every mind to raise themselves mm -hmm. to that level well it's difficult because uh, if there is that that apex that person that individual that we're, we're striving towards that, that person is not going to speak to everyone we are all individuals and we, we can't run away from it mm. and but if the I am is truly grounded it will be to the benefit of the greater good mm. and and that's where I wanted to go next, which was that the the interesting part of what you're presenting here is that in the world currently there is this message that to be in the present, mm. but it seems to be in the to be in the present at the, the expense of the future, and potentially at the expense of a number of parts of yourself as well. Whereas this individual that you met is describing elevate yourself, mm. understand the context, understand the, the direction, mm. understand um, some of the underlying, mm. let's just call it underlying necessities of society, mm. of, 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 of life, and then you can be fully mm. present. But what it also does, it, you look, you're looking back at yourself. So you could see how silly you are mm -hmm. or how connected or disconnected you are because you're looking at yourself how many times have you have you done that in your life and career and it's been beneficial I, in my mind i try to do that elevation pitch on an ongoing base what it does it may not make you emotionally connected always i think people will could experience me as distant at times mm -hmm. because as much as people are important and as much as it's about us in my mind, it's also about me. Mm -hmm. So if I can't nurture me, I can't nurture you. 
So what I experience on an ongoing basis is that people may experience that I'm up there mm-hmm. and that I'm not down here. But it's not an up there of of saying I'm distant because I'm more important or I'm more powerful or I just don't like you. It's it's an up there to say, well, join me up here. But I'm not going to join you down there. Mm. So that point that people then begin to take their, whatever it is, insecurities or life experience mm. and then place it on you. Mm. And that's why they're feeling that mm. way. Not because you're yeah. making them feel Because that I way. don't want to go down there. Mm. I don't like it down there. Because I look at me where I am. And I can see how vulnerable we are and how uninformed we are and how we make decisions that are not well-rounded. But if, I, if I'm down there, I would think I made the best yeah. decisions. I think I'll be the best thing since sliced bread. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very wary of how people look at themselves as these great individuals. And I wondered, and I'm just said, that's okay. I'm comfortable that I'm not that great, but that I'm aware of it. Mm. Let's pull the conversation back into into the journey. And so we were describing your journey from uh, this movement through youth. You then went into university. Your your first degree that you studied was what? Mm. So maybe I want to bother you a bit with details. So I was part of a class where there was a boy in class whose father was the well. He he played very good tennis. This guy. So I played a little bit of tennis. So they had a tennis court at their house. I was in the hostel, and uh, they were just adjacent to the hostel. So he will invite me to come and play tennis. And I met his dad eventually, and his dad was the uh, bank manager. Mm. So one afternoon while I had coffee there, his dad said, you must go to university. And I said, well, what, do, what does one do there? Mm. And he says, no, that's where you learn certain things, and you become a professional so forth. I said, oh. And at that stage, I was still, I was still very religious. So I discussed it with the the minister, and he said, "Well, I think you must become a minister." Mm-hmm. So I went back to the bank manager, and he says, "I said, well, I spoke to my parents, but they don't. We uh, we don't have money for this." And he said, "Well, that's okay. He trusts me. Um, I was the head boy at school." I took some leadership positions. He said, he will sign surety for me, Mm. the bank manager, for the first six months of my studies. And if I'm successful, he'll continue doing that if my parents are not in a position. So that's how I landed at university. Mm -hmm. I had no clue what it meant, but I'm going to become a minister. But I remember reading in 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 a magazine uh, that was lying around at school about a psychologist. And I thought, wow, this sounds interesting. So I decided I'll become a pastoral psychologist. And to become that, you had to study theology and psychology in an attempt to become a pastoral mm-hmm. psychologist. Mm-hmm. And that's where my journey started. Um, it started almost as an empty vessel of saying, I'm here now. And I will admit, I think I was not often in class. Because I rarely enjoyed university. Mm. But what I enjoyed, I enjoyed, I became the editor of the student newspaper. I became the SRC at the university. I became a house leader at my hostel. I had a ball of a time. Um, and because it was a mode one, a mode, which I didn't know at that time, where it simply says, just read the text and repeat it, mm. and then you pass. Mm-hmm. I must admit, it wasn't that challenging. Yeah. I can understand. So I learned what to, you know, read. And if you knew what the guys asked the previous year, you just learned that and you and you just did it and you passed. Mm. So I will admit, some of my qualif- – that first qualification was, was not that much about the learning in class, mm. but more about the learning outside of class. But yet I still, you know, entertained some basic concepts, especially around psychology and philosophy, because that was my first degree. Mm which I'm still very pleased of because there was a, a, a lecturer, Dr. Smith, and I think he really liked me. Mm-hmm. Um, he just liked me. And if I was doing some extramural things, he would say, don't worry, you can come and write the test afterwards. Mm. So he made it easy for me to stay academically connected and do my extramural work. And I think that's what made it more palatable. 
Um, so that's my first journey. But the, the extramural involvement seems to be the place where a great deal of your, then your learning was yes. taking place. Yes. I so, would say most of it took place. There. Okay. Uh, so at that point in time, what, what is it that you were learning? What, what was well, it that stood out? Well, I'll tell you what, I so mean, the, the journalist thing was, was magical. It, remember it's the 19, uh, early, late seventies, early eighties. Mm -hmm. And I became involved in the political awareness. Mm -hmm. My parents were not anywhere aware of this. I mean, but I became aware of it, and I became aware of some interesting things. And starting to look around and say, but there are only white kids around me. Mm -hmm. So uh, one ventured into exploring more of this, and I became eventually the president of the uh, press union across universities. Um, and that, to me, was really very uplifting. Well, he did a few things. It made me travel around the country, which I've never done. Mm -hmm. It made me meet people in politics, which I only heard about. That days we didn't have a lot of television, but, you know, I heard about them. So now you could engage with them. Um, I think that's what changed a lot of things for me. Mm. I saw an outside world, which was bigger than my little world. Um, and that, I think, impacted a lot of my life. It's difficult to do it in this kind of environment, this new environment. But if you were to venture mm. an educated guess on how a young individual might do that same thing now, mm. it's, a, it's a different world. Well, it is different. But if I think of it, I think there's more opportunity for the individual to raise her or his voice and to articulate that voice. Because you do have media platforms that are so multiple and rich. Mm. We did not have it at that time. You didn't have a cell phone. You had some television, you had the press being, uh, as well, uh, you know, controlled by government at that time. Mm -hmm. So you had single voice messages. I think today you could tap into multiple perspectives and argue and comment on that. But it's the articulation that I think is lacking so often. Mm. There's a lot of feeling mm. in the world. There's a lot of people mm. that, that want to express, mm. uh, but often they don't, they don't mm. know quite how to do it. Mm. And I think there's an it's almost an issue. anger. Mm, I agree with you. And I think the anger over, overtakes the, the, the reason. Mm. And then unfortunately, it, it doesn't go very far. You know, I think of it as the Feasmus 4 initiative, mm. which I, and I had some discussions with some of those students. I think they were angry about something which was never captured properly. Mm. They didn't felt nurtured. They didn't feel people are listening to me. They had no voice. They're angry. There's a text published based on that uh, just earlier this year okay. of the voices of some of the people who took the lead in the Fees Must Fall thing. And if you read that text, it's angry. It's extremely angry. But what's happening with it? Is it now because we've got free education now, the Fees Must Fall have won? No, the revolution is not gone for that. Mm. The student is still not feeling that I'm nurtured and listened to. There's an interesting debate that happens, certainly in my home. My wife was part of the Must Fall, so I was lucky I married a young wife, a young, beautiful wife. But um, and she was part of the origination of Must Fall in a particular kind of way, and so we have strong debate back, back and forth. If you can just, just highlight something for me here, please. The idea that someone needs to feel nurtured, what does that actually mm. mean? Because there's, there's It's very simple for me. Yeah. Are you respecting me? When I look in your eyes, are you respecting me? Okay. That's a good We're so humans. That's a great way to do that. Yeah. We don't need to use words. I can be in your presence for, for five minutes and I will feel either acknowledged or nurtured or not respected or respected. <coughs> Sorry. I will know it. I will experience it. You don't need to, to convince me about it. Mm. But if I'm in your presence, are you present in my presence? And are you allowing me and am I allowing you to show up in a respectful way? Mm. So it's not about patting somebody on the back or giving somebody anything. No, it's just, just availing yourself as a, as a, as a soundboard almost mm. or as a companion. Whether we agree or disagree, doesn't matter. Let's jump back into the journey. Your, th your first degree is um, an, an eye-opening experience for you. I think that's how you've described it. Not necessarily because of the de degree itself, but certainly it would have been, mm. there would have been value added mm. there. You then 
left university? You decided to stay on? What What was the next step? Well, having come from this poor background and being sponsored, well, not sponsored, but being having a study loan from day one, I actually stayed at university for 11 years. Oh, really? Okay. I never left the place. Um, I never left it because I did all my studying. And in my when I finished my third degree, I took up a job as a um, admissions clerk working with porters at the hospital, mm. which was adjacent to the university. So what happened is I worked at night, uh, either shift from 9 o'clock at night at 6 in the morning uh, mostly and on weekends, and then during the day I was at class. Now, it gave an interesting dynamic. So the university for where I then also had the study loan said, look, but you must start paying back your loan mm-hmm. because you're now working. Mm-hmm. I said, yes, I am, but I'm also studying full time. And I remember this guy, the, the financial manager at the university, said, but you can't. I said, well, I'm working eight hours a day and I'm studying every day. He says, but you can't. I said, I am. Mm. He said, you can't. I said, I am. So the fact that I had a pay slip as a permanent employee, forced me as a student to start paying back my loan. I then negotiated my terms, but I had to start paying back because the rule, the norm said, you can't study Mm full-time and work full-time. So I stayed at university, and uh, I was fortunate um, to be be, uh, successful in being selected as a psychology master's student, Mm -hmm. of which even until today you know they only select like 14 on a campus. And um, I was then fortunate to um, to conclude my studies um, whilst being there for 11 years. Mm. I then started practicing psychologist straight away after university. Okay, so that was your step now away from the academic environment into yes. a, a clinical environment, essentially. That's correct. There was a, uh, a heart surgeon, a physiolo- uh, heart surgeon, uh, and he, Dr. Francois Retif, and he, he actually met me and said he had this dream about bringing a psychologist into his practice. He was a cardiologist. Mm. Bring him into his practice and turning to his cardiology patients. And that's, that's where I started. I, he didn't advertise. I didn't look for a job. I literally went from my class and the next week I got my registration papers and I started practicing mm. as a psychologist um, with him. And I, st- I practiced from 1991, 1990 until I went to the university full-time um, in when we started the business school in 1999. Okay, really? So you were then practicing? Yes, in- I was practicing for about nine years as a practicing psychologist. As seems to happen in everyone's journey, maybe you're an exception because of a, a very interesting young life that you had. Uh, but was this was there an, an ego suppression that you had to mm-hmm. go through? A lot of people seem to have that happen to them and then they brought down to earth with mm. particular kinds of experiences? Well, I could start and say one of my darling, so to call, professors was um, quite alarmed that I wanted to open my practice immediately. Mm. He actually called um, and asked the secretary one day, just as I opened, does he have his papers already? Because there's a rule, mm. you must have your papers. Mm-hmm. She said, yes, it's here in a frame says okay but i got very close involved as from the beginning on the on the local on the regional level with the professional body so i became um, i was elected into the, the the management system of the professional body fairly soon and eventually chaired it at a regional level so i think my attitude was almost just join them just put your energy in there mm-hmm. and see what happens and so on that professional level, I was involved in organizing the the professional regional activities of the association. Mm. But then um, when I finished my uh, my doctorate, or in my, in my practice, uh, some uh, people from the local uh, hospital visited me and said they want me to consider, they want to work with me on a project. And we spoke about it, and they said it's about understanding the needs of working adults in a post-apartheid system. Mm-hmm. So I wrote a proposal to the Kellogg Foundation in the U.S., 
and they sponsored it. Wow. And that was my PhD. Mm-hmm. And the, and there were wonderful people who made this come true. So it was, I developed a bachelor's degree, the first of its kind at that time for a modular based management leadership degree program in South Africa. And the vice chancellor, Professor Gutsia, and then thereafter, Professor Furi and Professor Fulyun were great allies. We, we visited we, we spoke to many people. We visited many business schools around the world, and we came back and we established the business school, mm-hmm. which is the only business school who's got a bachelor's degree in its fold. Mm-hmm. But it's a bachelor's degree based on the needs of working adults in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And I think there my practice work almost transcended into a more a different engagement with society where my interest became what is the development education needs of people at work? When I look at your journey, I'm I'm seeing two things. But what I'm seeing is almost a um, a very natural and almost dare I say easy progression into another phase that you enter into. Mm-hmm. I, maybe to put it in different terms, I'm listening. I can hear uh, one of our listeners or two of our listeners or however many are asking the question. Um, but how did it see? How did it come so easy? How did you get Kellogg University to to sponsor something? Mm-hmm. That's not something that very many people can achieve. Mm-hmm. That's a difficult feat. Mm-hmm. How did you do that? So there's there's the first um, observation or, or even question. The, the the second point is what I've also seen and heard is this very natural flow of of the evolution of of, of you. I, I had quite a strong sense when I was practicing. I said to many of my and I did a lot of career work with young people, and I often said to them, if you find me at this address or in this position in five years' time, then you can appreciate that there's something wrong. Mm. So I almost preempted it by saying, I will keep moving. Mm. Now, I often feel that I'm moving and I'm not really getting to the ultimate place. Okay. Um, I'm just on the move, mm. and I don't know where will be the next place. So you don't know where the ultimate place no. is? No, mm. I don't know. Yeah, but that's because you are, and mm. you are evolving, mm. I guess. Mm. Yeah, so I've got no desire. I actually said in my, you know, in you're asking some questions, I don't see, I'm not ambitious at all. I've got no intention to, I've got no ambition. No, oh, but you must be ambitious. I'm not ambitious. I but just, I just love to do what, what sort of ignites my energy, and and makes me come alive, and and I want to be happy. I am happy when I when I go to bed at night, I die, mm. and when I wake up in the morning, I rise to to a new life, mm. and I and and sometimes it's not that easy, but most of the time, that's exactly what it is. Which doesn't mean they are not extremely tough days and challenges, but I die with those. And but what it also does is I don't have a sense of tomorrow. So I, we're not going to do things tomorrow. We'll do it now. Mm. Yeah, there's no there's no allowance. There's no tomorrow. This is a very interesting. I mean, almost fascinating way that you live your life. I'm trying to. I'm scrolling through our Instagram. Uh, feed here because there was a quote that that you've brought to my mind and I just can't seem to find it. But uh, can you explain why things seem or seem from a certain perspective to appear easy to you? Maybe I don't take life too serious. I don't think I take anything too serious. Okay. I am. I want to think that I'm content. I think life has given me so much. I, I was young. I think I was 19, and I said to my parents one day, but I am, I am really ready to die. And I recall that my dad was very upset about that. But you, said, you said really, really. Really, really. You're ready to die. Yes. And uh, I think, I must be honest, that's still very true until this day, that I, I almost have a sense of calling okay. the other side of life. I'm interested to to understand what that means, though. Well, I don't think that we only need to be here. Okay. I think we can be at different places. But I have a sense that this place has been great, and um, 
there's been great and there are great engagements and meaningful engagements. But I'm always cautious not to get attached to anything. Okay. Because in a way, I'm extremely sentimental. I went to visit Sweden just to follow my ancestral path. I went to the graveyards of my ancestors. Mm. When I went to Malaysia, I was emotional about it. Mm. I'm extremely sentimental. I've got a table in my house which my grandfather's mother gave birth to him. Wow. Um, so everything in my house has got a story. Mm. So I'm extremely sentimental. But yet you have the ability to to put some of that almost aside, mm. but not aside necessarily. It's because you're connected to it. Mm. Um, and then move towards this other place, mm. this other existence. Well, I think, you, I, think, I think I experience to be emotional or emotive around things in a sense is less problematic mm. because somebody can steal it or it can break. But when, when you work with people, we are living human beings. And the fact that you love me today and the fact that you and I have a great experience today should not impose the, in, the, the intent or the assumption that we're going to have the same tomorrow. Yeah, that expectation is That unfair. expectation. Yeah. So I've got no expectation of either myself or other people mm. because we try to show up every day in a meaningful way, but we may not. Well, on that point, it brought me back to this quote that I found. I, I was actually on Facebook. And it's from Howard Thurman. Don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and go and do it. Hmm. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. I think I hear that, <laughs> that coming through quite strongly. I, I must here. read more about that. We are running out of time. It's been a fascinating conversation. Um, and we haven't, I don't think, scratched the surface really. Maybe what we can do for the last 10 minutes or so of the time that we have together, we can just go into some of the, the, the probably the quicker questions. Um, we, we'll call it our, our quick fire round. And, and I guess part of that is some of the lessons that you've learned. And so when you reflect back on your life and your development and uh, there was a mistake that you probably made because of pure naivety what was that what would that mistake have mm. been and and what did you take from it well i think the mistake in the early days was that i thought you can look up to somebody okay mm. it was a mistake um i experienced it twice and then i stopped it um, well, what did you experience? Well, well, I experienced that if I serve my sponsor at work, especially when I went to the corporate space in one of the big banks, if I serve the sponsor, well, then I will be okay. Mm. Just to realize that is extremely dangerous. And maybe that's what also informed the idea that I really, I was really experiencing and I learned that the idea of who do you look up to, mm. who is your mentor, who is your role model, is extremely problematic. Mm. It's a key learning yes. is, is who you looked up to at that particular mm. point. There was some therefore form the, of well, therefore, the idea to look up to somebody, I think, is problematic. Mm. In my life, it was a mistake that I learned from. Okay, interesting. As you move into a role... Uh, and the role of being the CEO at the Da Vinci Institute. Mm. I mean, that, that's a, an interesting move away from a clinical practice environment. Mm. What were lessons you learned very early on? Mm. Well, I very early learned that although I understand the um, context of business, mm. and in particular this education business, and the drivers and the and the stakeholders, I understand the context. I don't have a clue about the details around running a business. Business, okay. And it was a very freeing experience to, or to be okay about it, um, because if I need financial and accounting expertise, I appoint an auditor. You can find that, yeah. And if I need the best IT systems. I get an IT specialist. So allowing the people who are good at what they are to actually be part of your team. Mm. So what it does, it, it does not allow you to feel very powerful and very important mm. because I only know one aspect of the business. Mm. Maybe the strategy, maybe the broad, you know, the contextual stuff. 
But business is much more than that. And um, I had to learn, and I'm pleased that I'm still you know, holding to that, that I need people to fill up certain specific business aspects that are not less important than my strategic perspective. Mm-hmm. Oh, very nice. Thank you. As you then reflect on this journey, which is now close on how many years? You said 99. So we're talking about 18, yeah. 18 or so, 19 years. Mm-hmm. You would have evolved and grown, certainly from a leadership perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you reflect on your three pillars of CEO leadership, how would you mm-hmm. summarize those three mm-hmm. pillars? I think there's a, a business leadership, if you wish, meta frame that has emerged over the past 13 years in particular. And that is that we should consider how agile, how aligned, and how engaged are we as a people. Mm. So how do we show up in those contexts? But I've seen in the work that I'm doing with, with businesses and individuals that when the idea of being agile and aligned and engaged are really connected there's something happening, something sustainably happening in that workspace. Agile, because I miss, because I miss the agility. I miss the alignment. Therefore, how do I adjust to what must be done? Mm. And I miss the engagement. And and how that reflects it is, we make rules for engagement, but that's not the engagement. Those again are compliance. Mm. But if we are engaged, you'll get a community that will reach out to each other, that will embrace each other, that won't wait for a, a BE ruling to say, well, your figures don't look right. Mm-hmm. So engagement, alignment, and agility, and they, they, in a sense, are underpinned by four business pieces. The one is, is innovation an integral part of your way of being? Mm-hmm. Not an event. Mm-hmm. The way you uh, uh, integrate your technologies your tools and your processes, is it a well-integrated system or is it ad hoc and I buy the next best thing from the shelf? The way I manage my people in a systemic way. Those are underpinning, um, I don't know, guidelines, Mm. actions that bring the agile, aligned and engaged framework in my world to the front. Mm. I want to take a moment just um, just to speak about Da Vinci because we haven't done that just just yet. What is what is inherently mm. different between Da Vinci and any other business school mm. that might um, come into this what is competi- a competitive space? Mm. Maybe just to start off by saying I think the idea was something that was originated by a colleague called Prof. Roy Marcus. Okay. And I was at first trend at that time and um, as an executive, and I became part of Da Vinci. So I eventually did do the accreditation and the registration and the positioning of it. And in particular, the focus around a mode two a business leadership school. Mm. And you may ask, what does that mean? Well, I don't know if it is because I'm from Swedish origins, but the Scandinavian countries has got a strong idea around a mode two education engagement. And you were talking about mode one previously yes. was a certain, a particular kind of standard yes. deliver, read, yes. and that, that's what you get. So mode two says, firstly, are you socially and contextually uh, connected? Mm. So in what, what, who are you doing this for apart from yourself? Mm. That's the first question. The second one is, how are you involved in a transdisciplinary way? So tell me how many disciplines informs this question and answer mm. that you are contemplating. Transdisciplinary. We, we come from a history of disciplinarity. Mm. So the doctor knows how to do a doctor thing. Well, the doctor should also know about architecture, the coloring of his rooms, the, the, the business. There's many aspects, but we're not looking at that. So the, whole, the holism is reflected in the transdiscipline engagement. Your ability to innovate is a reflection of your your transdisciplinary understanding. Yes. How do you see the interconnectivity amongst them? Yes, exactly. Thirdly, it's about appreciating that there's not a normative answer, but that there is a a non-normative, diverse engagement. So give me all the perspective possibilities on this answer. Can't, Can't you get trapped in that, though? 
Well, you could get trapped in anything. It's probably about a balance. But what it does, it it allows the mind to venture into other possibilities Mm. and not to be tricked into one singular truth because that's not truth. Mm. And lastly, it's about the professional application. So how do you professionally make this come real? A theory, uh, you know, there's a saying that says a good theory is only a good theory if you can practice it. Mm. Well, we very much believe in that. Mm. So that's, that's the idea of Da Vinci. It's about, um, it's about those core pieces. And then ultimately the principles of being curious and embracing the shadow and connecting and interconnecting things, those all build up to a, a, a statement which we make that our purpose is to co-create realities. Mm. So when you come and you want to get a bachelor's degree in supply chain management, we want you to leave with your perspective on supply chain management, Mm. not mine. Mm. The best book you've ever read. What was that? Osho's The Book of Understanding. The Book of Understanding. I've not heard of it. I'm going to have to go and look it up. Osho. Osho. Thank you. Somebody introduced it to me in the desert in Rajasthan. Okay. Um, It's a magnificent read. Mm. Thank you. Uh, we've not heard that here before. Thank you. The worst advice that you've ever received? Oh, my. I'm struggling a bit with this. I think something which I already referred to that I, that I didn't find positive is that people said you must have a role player, a, a, a role a model. model. Yeah. So I could almost say I think it wasn't good advice for telling me as a kid at school that you must have a role model mm. because I tested it and it failed me dismally. Mm. Mm. Okay. No, thank you. Um, and then the best advice you've received? Well, at school I was in my adolescent years trying to write poetic and I wrote an essay and my teacher said, and I wrote and I, th- was, I was sort of, wondering what's going to be the result of this mm-hmm. because I was very vulnerable in exposing myself just how I felt about an experience in a relationship. And he wrote a note and he said, to thy own self, be true. Mm. Very nice. And then finally, if you could go back in time and speak to the young future CEO you, mm. what would you say to yourself? I think I would just say, I would say to myself, take those difficult decisions you know you have to take. Just take it quicker. Make quick decisions. Make quick, well, you see, I don't want to say quick decisions, but I want to say, if you know this decision must be taken, okay. make the tough decisions okay. quicker. Okay. Make the tough decisions quicker. quicker. Yeah, not, not quick decisions. Yes. Yeah, very, it's a, a key difference there. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Professor Benjamin Anderson, thank you so very much for taking the time to be with us. You're the CEO of the Da Vinci Institute, and we are going to now be looking with even greater enthusiasm and interest at Da Vinci and where Da Vinci goes. Thank you for the privilege for allowing me to show up. All right, that's all we have time for today, unfortunately, but we will be here same time, same place with uh, hopefully probably difficult to beat this conversation but hopefully a similar conversation for you next week thursday here on cliff central see you then future ceos on cliffcentral.com this is cliffcentral.com